Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 6 Vauxhall I know that the tune I am piping is a very mild one, although there are some terrific chapters coming presently, and I must beg the good-natured reader to remember that we are only talking about a stockbroker's family in Russell Square, who are taking walks or lunch, as people do in ordinary life, without a single wonderful incident to mark the progress of their loves. So far, Osborne, in love with Amelia, has asked an old friend to Vauxhall. Joss Sedley is in love with Rebecca. Will he marry her? That is the great subject now in hand. Suppose we had laid the scene in Grosvenor Square, and it shown how Lord Joseph Sedley fell in love, and the Marquis of Osborne became attached to Lady Amelia, with the full consent of the Duke, her noble father. Or, instead, suppose we had resorted to the entirely low and described what was going on in Mr. Sedley's kitchen, how Samuel was in love with the cook, as indeed he was, and how he fought a battle with the coachman over her, and how the knife-boy was caught stealing a shoulder of mutton. Such incidents might provoke much delightful laughter, and be supposed to represent scenes of life, or... If we had made a professional burglar burst into the house, slaughter Samuel, and carry off Amelia in her nightdress, not to be rescued till the third volume, we would have had our readers panting through the fiery chapters of such a thrilling tale. But my readers must be content with a homely story and a chapter about Vauxhall which is so short that it scarce deserves to be called a chapter at all. And yet... It is a very important one. Are there not little chapters in everybody's life that seem to be nothing, and yet affect all the rest of their history? Let us then step into the coach with the Russell Square party and be off to Vauxhall Gardens. Joss and Miss Sharp are on the front seat, with Mr. Osborne sitting opposite between Captain Dobbin and Amelia. Every soul in the coach agreed that on that night Joss would propose to Rebecca Sharp. The parents at home had acquiesced, though old Mr. Sedley had a feeling close to contempt for his son. He said he was vain, selfish, lazy, and effeminate, and laughed at his pompous, bragging stories. "'I shall leave the fellow half my property.' he said, but I am perfectly sure that if you, I, and his sister were to die tomorrow, he would say, good gad, and eat his dinner just as usual. Oh, let him marry whom he likes, it's no affair of mine. Amelia, on the other hand, was quite enthusiastic for the match, and in a flutter of excitement. 
She did not speak with Rebecca on the subject, but had long conversations with Mrs. Blenkinsop, the housekeeper, who dropped some hints to the lady's maid, who may have mentioned the matter to the cook, who carried the news to all the tradesmen, so that Mr. Joss's marriage was now talked of by a large number of persons. Everything seemed to smile upon Rebecca's fortunes. She took Joss's arm on going to dinner. She sat by him on the box of his open carriage, and though nobody said a word about marriage, everyone seemed to understand it. All she wanted was the proposal. Ah, how Rebecca now felt the lack of a mother, who would have managed the business in ten minutes, and with a little delicate conversation would have extracted the avowal from the young man's bashful lips. Such was the state of affairs as the carriage crossed Westminster Bridge. They arrived at the Royal Gardens. As the majestic jaw stepped out of the creaking vehicle, the crowd gave a cheer for the fat gentleman, who blushed as he walked away with Rebecca under his arm. George, of course, took charge of Amelia. "'I say, Dobbin,' said George, "'just look after the shawls and things. There's a good fellow.' And so... While he paired off with Miss Sedley, and Joss squeezed through the gate into the gardens with Rebecca, honest Dobbin contented himself by carrying the shawls and paying at the door for the whole party. He walked modestly behind them, unwilling to be a spoilsport. About Rebecca and Joss he did not care a fig, but he thought Amelia worthy even of the brilliant George Osborne, and as he saw the girl's delight and wonder, he watched her artless happiness with a sort of fatherly pleasure. Perhaps he felt that he would have liked to have someone on his own arm rather than a shawl, but William Dobbin was not selfish, and so long as his friend was enjoying himself, how should he be discontented? And the truth is that of all the delights of the gardens, of the hundred thousand lamps, the fiddlers, the singers, the country dancers, with their thumping and jumping and laughter, the signal which announced that Madame Sackey was about to mount on a slack rope ascending to the stars, the hermit that sat in the illuminated hermitage, the dark walks so favorable to young lovers, Captain William Dobbin did not take the slightest notice. He carried about Amelia's white cashmere shawl, and having listened to Mrs. Salmon perform the Battle of Borodino, a savage cantata against Napoleon, Dobbin tried to hum it as he walked away, and found he was humming the tune which Amelia Sedley sang as she came down to dinner. He burst out laughing at himself, for he could sing no better than an owl. Our two young couples made solemn promises to keep together during the evening, and separated ten minutes later. Parties at Vauxhall always did separate, to meet again at supper-time, when they could talk of their adventures. What were the adventures of Mr. Osborne and Miss Amelia? That is a secret, but be sure that they were perfectly happy and correct in their behavior, and as they had been in the habit of being together any time these fifteen years, their tete-a-tete -tete offered no particular novelty. 
But when Miss Rebecca Sharp and her stout companion lost themselves in a solitary path, in which they were no more than a hundred other couples, they both felt that the situation was extremely critical. Now or never was the moment, Miss Sharp thought, for Mr. Sedley's declaration. They had previously been to the panorama of Moscow, where a fellow treading on Miss Sharp's foot caused her to fall back with a little shriek into Mr. Sedley's arms. This incident increased his confidence so much that he told her several of his favorite Indian stories all over again. "'How I should like to see India,' said Rebecca. "'Oh, should you?' said Joseph tenderly, and was no doubt about to follow up this question with one still more tender when, ah, oh, provoking, the bell rang for the fireworks, and a great scuffling and running took place.' the lovers were obliged to follow the stream of people. Captain Dobbin had thought of joining the party at supper, but he walked twice in front of the box where the couples met, and nobody noticed him. Covers were laid for four. The mated pairs were prattling away quite happily, and Dobbin knew he was clean forgotten. "'I should only be de trop,' said the captain, rather wistfully. I'd best go and talk to the hermit. So he strolled out of the noise and clatter of the banquet into the dark walk, at the end of which lived that pasteboard solitary. It wasn't very good fun for Dobbin. Indeed, to be alone at Vauxhall is dismal sport for a bachelor. The two couples were perfectly happy in their box. Joss was in his glory, ordering about the waiters with great majesty. He made the salad, uncorked the champagne, carved the chickens, and ate and drank the greater part of the refreshments. Finally, he insisted upon having a bowl of rack punch. Everybody had rack punch at Vauxhall. That bowl of rack punch was the cause of all this history. And why not? Was not a bowl of wine the cause of the demise of Alexander the Great? So Rack Punch influenced the fates of all the chief characters in this novel without a hero, although most of them did not taste a drop of it. The young ladies did not drink it. Osborne did not like it. And so Joss drank up the whole contents of the bowl. The consequence of this was a liveliness which at first was astonishing and then became painful for he talked and laughed so loud as to bring scores of listeners round the box, much to the confusion of the group within it, volunteering to sing a song, which he did in that maudlin high key peculiar to inebriated gentlemen. He received from his hearers a great deal of applause. "'Bravo, Fadden!' said one wag. "'What a figure for the tightrope!' exclaimed another, to the alarm of the ladies and the anger of Mr. Osborne. "'For heaven's sakes, Joss, let us go!' he cried, and the young women rose. "'Stop, my dearest diddle-diddle-darling!' shouted Joss, now as bold as a lion, clasping Miss Rebecca round the waist. Rebecca started, but she could not get away. The laughter redoubled. Joss continued to drink, to make love, and to sing, and winking and waving his glass gracefully to his audience, challenged them to take a share of his punch. 
Mr. Osborne was just on the point of knocking down a gentleman who proposed to accept this invitation, and a commotion seemed to be inevitable, when by the greatest good luck, Dobbin stepped up to the box. "'Be off, you fools!' he said. The crowd vanished before his cocked hat and fierce appearance. "'Good heavens, Dobbin, where have you been?' Osborne said, seizing the white shawl from his friend's arm and huddling Amelia in it. Make yourself useful and take charge of Joss here while I take the ladies to the carriage. Joss was rising to interfere, but a push from Osborne's finger sent him puffing back into his seat again, and the lieutenant was able to remove the ladies in safety. Joss kissed his hand to them as they retreated, hiccuping, Bless you! <gasps> Bless you! <laughs> then, seizing Captain Dobbin's hand and weeping pitifully, he confided the secret of his love. He adored that girl who had just gone. <laughs> he had broken her heart by his conduct. He would marry her next morning at St. George's, Hanover Square. Oh, he'd knock up the Archbishop of Canterbury at Lambeth by Jove for the purpose. Captain Dobbin shrewdly persuaded him to leave the gardens in order to hasten to Lambeth Palace. Once out of the gates, he easily got Joss into a hackney coach which took him to his lodgings. George Osborne took the girls home and laughed after he had closed the door upon them. Amelia looked ruefully at her friend as they went upstairs. They kissed and went to bed without talking. He must propose tomorrow thought Rebecca. He called me his soul's darling four times. He squeezed my hand in Amelia's presence. He must propose tomorrow. And so thought Amelia, too, and I dare say she thought of the dress she would wear as bridesmaid, and of a subsequent ceremony in which she herself might be the bride. Oh, ignorant young creatures. Aha! Uh -huh. How little do you know the effect of rack punch! There is no headache in the world like that caused by Vauxhall Punch. Through the lapse of twenty years, I can remember the consequence of two glasses, and Joseph Sedley had swallowed at least a quart. Next morning, which Rebecca thought was to dawn upon her fortune, George Osborne found the ex-collector of Boggley Walla in agonies, groaning on the sofa at his lodgings. Dobbin was already in the room, good-naturedly tending his patient. The two officers looked askance at each other, exchanging sympathetic grins. Even Sedley's solemn valet could hardly keep his face in order. "'Mr. Sedley was uncommon wild last night, sir,' he whispered to Osborne. "'He wanted to fight the acne coachman, sir. The captain had to bring him upstairs in his arms like a baby.' "'How are you, Sedley?' Osborne asked. No bones broke. There's a hackney coachman downstairs with a black eye, vowing he'll have the law on you. Oh, what, what do you mean? Sedley faintly asked. For thrashing him last night, didn't he, Dobbin? The watchman said he never saw a fellow go down so straight. Ask Dobbin. You did have a round with the coachman, Captain Dobbin said, and showed plenty of fight, too. And that fellow at Vauxhall? How Joss drove at him! How the women screamed! Oh, 
"'By Jove, sir, it did my heart good to see you. "'I'll never get in your way when you are in your cups, Joss. "'I believe I'm uh, oh, very terrible when I'm roused,' said Joss from the sofa with a dreary grimace. "'Osborne pursued his advantage pitilessly. "'He thought Joss a milksop. "'He'd been revolving in his mind the question of marriage between Joss and Rebecca, "'and was not pleased that a member of a family into which he, George Osborne, was going to marry, "'should make a misalliance with a little upstart governess. "'Why, man, you couldn't stand!' "'You made everybody laugh, though you were crying yourself. "'You were maudlin, Joss. "'Don't you remember seeing a song and calling Rosa, Rebecca, what's her name, "'your dearest diddle-diddle-darling?' "'And this ruthless young fellow, seizing Dobbin's hand, "'acted out the scene to Joseph's horror, "'and in spite of Dobbin's good-natured entreaties to have mercy. "'Why should I spare him?' Osborne said to his friend when they quitted the invalid, leaving him under the hands of Dr. Gollop. What the deuce right has he to give himself airs and make fools of us at Vauxhall? Who's this schoolgirl that is ogling him? Oh, hang it, the family's low enough already without her. I'd rather have a lady for my sister-in-law. I know my own station, let her know hers. And I'll prevent that nabob from being made a greater fool than he is. That's why I told him to look out, lest she brought an action against him. I suppose you know best, Dobbin said, though rather dubiously, but I'll come and see the girls and make love to Miss Sharp yourself, the lieutenant interrupted, but Captain Dobbin declined. As George walked down Southampton Row to the Sedley Mansion, he laughed as he saw two heads on the lookout. Miss Amelia, in the drawing-room balcony, was looking very eagerly towards the other side of the square on the watch for him, and Miss Sharp was observing from the second floor until Mr. Joseph's great form should heave in sight. "'Sister Anne is on the watchtower,' said he to Amelia, on entering, "'but there's nobody coming.' Enjoying the joke hugely, he described in ludicrous terms the dismal condition of her brother." "'I think it's very cruel of you to laugh, George,' she said, looking unhappy. But George only laughed the more. When Miss Sharp came downstairs, he bantered with a great deal of liveliness upon the effect of her charms. "'Oh, Miss Sharp, if you could but see him this morning, <laughs> moaning in his flowered dressing gown, writhing on his sofa, if you could but have seen him lolling out his tongue to the doctor—' "'See whom?' said Miss Sharp. Whom? Oh, Captain Dobbin, of course, to whom we were all so attentive, by the way, last night. We were very unkind to him, Emmy said, blushing. I, I quite forgot him. Of course you did, cried Osborne, still laughing. One can't always be thinking about Dobbin, you know, Amelia. Can one, Miss Sharp? Except when he overturned the glass of wine at dinner, Miss Sharp said, with a haughty toss of the head. I never gave Captain Dobbin one moment's consideration. Very good, Miss Sharp. I'll tell him, Osborne said, and Miss Sharp began to have a feeling of distrust and hatred towards this young officer. He is to make fun of me, is he? thought Rebecca. Has he frightened Joseph about me? Perhaps he won't come. 
A film passed over her eyes, and her heart beat quite quick. "'You're always joking,' said she, smiling as innocently as she could. "'Joke away, Mr. George. There's nobody to defend me.' As she walked away, George felt some little manly compunction for being unkind to this helpless creature. "'My dearest Amelia, you don't know the world. I do. Your little friend must learn her station. Do you think Joss will—' "'I don't know. He may or may not. I only know he is a very foolish, vain fellow, and put my dear little girl into a very painful position last night.' "'My dearest diddle-diddle darling!' <laughs> He was off laughing again so drolly that Emmy laughed too. All that day, Joss never came. But Amelia had no fear about this, for she had sent a servant to Mr. Joseph's lodgings to ask for some book he had promised and see how he was, and the reply through Joss's man was that his master was ill in bed and had the doctor with him. He must come tomorrow, she thought, but she never had the courage to speak on the subject to Rebecca. The next day, however, as the two young ladies sat on the sofa, pretending to work, Samuel came in with his usual engaging grin, a packet under his arm and a note on a tray. "'From Mr. Joss, miss,' he said. How Amelia trembled as she opened it. The note ran. "'Dear Amelia, I send you the orphan of the forest.' I was too ill to come yesterday. I leave town today for Cheltenham. Pray excuse me, if you can, to the amiable Miss Sharp, for my conduct at Vauxhall, and entreat her to forget every word I uttered when excited by that fatal supper. As soon as I have recovered, for my health is very much shaken, I shall go to Scotland for some months, and am truly yours, Joss Setley." It was the death warrant. All was over. Amelia did not dare to look at Rebecca's pale face and burning eyes, but she dropped the letter into her friend's lap, got up and went upstairs, and cried her little heart out. The housekeeper sought her with consolation. "'Don't take on, miss. I didn't like to tell you, but none of us in the house have liked her except at first. I saw her reading your ma's letters.' "'Pinner says she's always about your trinket-box and everybody's drawers, "'and she's sure she's put your white ribbon into her box.' "'I gave it her,' Amelia said. "'But this did not alter Mrs. Blenkinsop's opinion of Miss Sharp. "'It now became clear to every soul in the house, except poor Amelia, "'that Rebecca should depart as speedily as possible. "'Our good child ransacked her drawers, cupboards, and bags, reviewed her gowns, bobbins, laces, and silk stockings, selecting this thing and that for Rebecca. Going to her papa, who had promised to give her as many guineas as she was years old, she begged him to give the money to dear Rebecca. She even made George Osborne contribute— and since he was a free-handed young fellow, he went to Bond Street and bought the best hat and coat that money could buy. "'That's George's present to you, Rebecca, dear,' said Amelia, proud of the bandbox conveying these gifts. "'What a taste he has! Oh, there's nobody like him!' "'Nobody,' Rebecca answered. "'How thankful I am to him!' 
she was thinking. It was George Osborne who prevented my marriage. And she loved George Osborne accordingly. She accepted all Amelia's presents after just the proper degree of hesitation. She vowed eternal gratitude to Mrs. Sedley, but did not intrude herself upon that good lady, who was embarrassed and wished to avoid her. She kissed Mr. Sedley's hand when he presented her with the purse, and asked permission to consider him her kind, kind friend and protector. Her behavior was so affecting that he was going to write her a check for twenty pounds more, but he restrained his feelings, and tripped away with a, "'God bless you, my dear. Always come here when you come to town, you know.' Finally came the parting with Amelia, a scene in which one person was in earnest and the other a perfect performer." After the tenderest caresses and the most pathetic tears, Rebecca and Amelia parted, the former vowing to love her friend for ever and ever and ever. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.